Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank here with Byron, and as always, we're bringing the latest and greatest news and information that you probably haven't heard of. But before we get into everything, we're going to talk about this shit this week. Byron, let the listeners know why they should be checking out Politically Entertaining on a regular basis. Well, as you just said, man, we bring you bring, we bring you news that you know doesn't get covered in the national media, but you know it's just as important. But it's not getting the attention that it deserves. And if you listened last week, hopefully you found that out with the Gun Trace Task Force. We'll be talking some more about that. But before we get into the more serious topics, and this, I don't necessarily call this a light topic, Frank, but I had a moment uh, last week with my daughter, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So there's a show on TV One called Two Sides, and it basically, so far, is reviewed like the cases of Eric Garner. Uh, Sandra Bland, uh, forgive me, <laughs> excuse me, I forget the kid's name that got killed in uh, John Crawford in Walmart. And basically, you know, it has like the law enforcement side and, you know, the the, the victim's uh, family side and, and stuff. So it's called Two Sides. So anyway, I'm watching it and it was the episode on uh, Eric Garner and my daughter, she's on the floor playing with her toys, not paying attention. And she looks up at the TV and she sees what the upcoming episode is about to be uh, be about. And she sees Eric Garner getting getting choked and she, you know, puts her dolls down, gets up, comes, sits right next to me on the couch and watches the whole episode. Now, I don't want to be one of those parents that are like, you know, those typical parents that are like, you know, my daughter is way beyond her age. And she was asking all these questions and she was really into it. She understood what was going on. I'm not going to go that far. She's nine years old. But, you know, for me, it, it was a big deal for me because, you know, she stopped what she was doing to pay attention and see what was going on. And I have jokingly said that in a couple of years, I'm going to make her sit down and we're going to watch Roots together. And that's not really a joke. We are going to do that. But I've spoken to some parents, Frank, that they don't want their kids to, quote, see race. I, I've spoken to one mother that said, you know, I'm not going to tell my daughter that she has to work harder or there's racism. You know, I don't want her to use that as a hurdle. I want her to think that everything is fair. So I just wanted to get your take on have thoughts like that cross your mind, because I know your daughter is much younger than mine. But has that crossed your mind on how you're going to raise her when it comes to being socially conscious? It's definitely crossed my mind. I mean, of course, as anytime you have a parent and you anytime as a parent and you have children, you look and think about all the hurdles that you have to explain to them, especially when you're a minority. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm definitely going to I can't fake the funk. And, you know, I, I'm going off on these podcasts and then not tell my daughter the same truth. I mean, I'm the I'm kind of person that it's going to have to be how it is now. You know, everything is not necessarily a negative thing. It's just something that it is. Right. You have to understand that, you know, when it's explained to her, understand that everybody has a purpose on this earth. God gave everybody a purpose. And, you know, you have something you're going to do and there's going to be some challenges regardless of anything. And these are some of the challenges you're going to face. So, I mean, I think from that standpoint, you're 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 if you don't tell your kids the challenges they're going to face, you're not giving them a chance to prepare for it. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be fair. It's going to be perfect. But you have to lay, lay out the reality of what uh, the world we live in is, which there are races. There are ceilings that they try to put in place, especially for women. And there's a lot of misogyny that still goes on. That's just that has nothing to do with race. It's just a gender thing. So just understanding all those things, um, you just have to know when to explain them. You don't want to hit, hit them all with it 
hit them all within like at once and they feel depressed, you know, just general gradually like working them into how the world is and then just praying that, you know, they have the wisdom to see uh, right and wrong and make the best decision for their lives when they get older. Yeah, and like you say, it's, it's going to be twice as hard for them because not only are they minority, but they're also, you know, women. So it's, it's going to be twice as hard. But I, I just, you know, like I said, I had a moment and I really she doesn't know it. I didn't we didn't talk about it, but it, it meant a lot to me that she paid attention to this show. Now, with that said, let's do like we always do. Let's get into some politics. Politically entertaining your Cliff's notes to American politics, and now your host Frank and Byron. Joining us on politically entertaining, so we ask that you subscribe. We're on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, as well as Google Play Podcast. Please subscribe, uh, leave feedback, rate us, uh, and pass the word. Get other people to subscribe. Like us on Facebook under Politically Entertaining. We'll be talking to Jane Miller of WBAL in Baltimore today to discuss some more about that gun trace task force. Yes, it's a big deal to me if you can't tell. So we'll be getting more information from her today. <clears throat> Frank, I kind of mentioned this last week, but we didn't discuss it. Uh, on Valentine's Day, there was a sh- another school shooting down in Broward County, uh, Florida, which is kind of near and dear to you because you went to school close in uh Miami University, which is Day County, right? So, <clears throat> that- yeah, you even actually to jump in even more so, uh, my sister who has been on the show, Michelle Turner, who has a dance studio in Coral Springs, that is her, a lot of her clientele actually comes from the Parkland area. So I, I'm very, very familiar with this area and the situation. Happy birthday, Michelle, by the way. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, so we had a shooting, and of course, as always, you have a mass shooting. And then you have, uh, you know, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So students from the school, I think it's called Parkland. They uh, they met with no, it's called Stoneman, but it's in Parkland. They met with Trump. They met with the president and he uh, proposed some solutions. And one of them was to arm our school teachers. One of them was to raise the age uh, to purchase a uh, rifle, because right now you can purchase one if you're 18. He's proposed uh, raising the age to uh, 21 and getting rid of uh, bump stocks, which was uh, a big deal during the Las Vegas massacre, which is what the uh, perpetrator used. Now, I'm on board with raising the age, getting rid of bump stocks. Those are pretty reasonable things. Uh, So I want to point out when I do agree with the president, which is pretty, you know, far and few between. But I think those are reasonable. But. Arming teachers, man, I, you know, I personally, I'm going to get your thoughts on this. I personally think that's an asinine idea. Like so many things can go wrong with that. I mean, think about, you know, teachers that that teaching these, uh, you know, 
I, I guess you could say rowdy uh, school districts or whatever, and you know having to break up kids and stuff and, and reaching their limit. Uh, when the police come into the school during the shooting, they see an adult with a weapon. You know, they don't they don't. It's a lot of confusion during a mass shooting. So I just think that's a bad idea. Also, I wanted to get your thoughts on while Trump met with the kids, he had in his hand a card. I'm calling it the empathy cue card because it had quotes on there like I hear you. Also, uh, what would you most want me to know about your experience? So this guy needed like notes on how to be empathetic to kids that have been through such a tragic uh, event. So what are your thoughts on are you for having Mr. Remington and Mrs. Mossberg carrying a strap while teaching Huck Finn in our schools? And did you see the cue cards that your president was uh, holding in his hand while he's talking to the kids? I heard about the cue cards. I didn't see them specifically, but does that surprise me? I mean, he's a complete buffoon, so no, no, um, no, no real surprise there. Now, as far as arming the teachers, I mean, I, you know, you mentioned rowdy schools, but here's the thing. A lot of these shootings are happening at Morrison and the non-rowdy schools. My thing is, if you bring more guns into the campus, you're introducing additional variables that obviously you have the issue, the, the, the easy issues to look at, which are, okay, the, the teacher could shoot a student, right, mistakenly, or having a bad day, shoot a student on purpose, or a student could, you know, get the gun or things like that, or students could try to overpower a teacher. But just more so understanding the idea that the NRA, this is how, this is how evil and corrupt they are, that they were able to turn, let me, let me tell you who's really controlling the country, like you, you got to understand how this got narrative even got turned. Like the, these these politicians were feeling heat this week. I will say this: the Republican politicians that, that take money from the NRA were feeling major heat this week, and they are so indebted to the NRA or whatever the term you want to use is that only thing they could they could they had to come back and parrot. Oh yeah, let's get more guns. Let's do do more guns, and, and you know what that does for the NRA makes them more money because then there's more you know ammunition more weapons being sold so there's really it's just incredible who's really controlling the narrative the nra is still controlling the narrative you're talking about bringing in more guns and the thing is people are actually they were able to actually turn a narrative that was a tragic one into one where they're making going to make independence making more money either way they're going to have sell more guns either going to have more security or they're going to have teachers who have guns and, and it's going to be more weapons and so they are a masterful bunch, um, but you know it's one of those kind of things where it just shows you what this country serves. You know, we say one nation under God, but it's really under mammon, which is money, and it's all about the dollar. So you see the the politicians who are puppeted by the NRA and NRA who still wants to make money, and they're like, look, if you want to stay funded, you better come up with a message that's going to keep us where we want to be. And they're like, oh yeah, well let's arm the teachers. Let's, you know, they make it sound good, but realistically, it doesn't make any sense because it's hard enough to be a qualified teacher, right? Let alone now have to carry a firearm. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Like, this is not what people are, you know, my mom was a teacher and people know this, anybody listens to this podcast, my mom has turned taught for over over 25 years in Mobile County and then Sarah Land um, public school systems. And I am sure the last, I haven't talked to her personally on this, but I'm sure the last thing she'd want to do at the floor or at Sesame where she taught also would be carrying a gun 
when also trying to work work out lesson plans for for you know Spanish one two and levels one two and three, like as if she didn't have enough to do, you know. And so to me, I just think it's a gross misunderstanding. It's not even misunderstanding the problem. It's just a gross spin of the problem, culminated with the with the woman from the NRA trying to use the Chicago effect again to to gain to 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 throw them off the set. So it's just it was disgusting, and it just shows how. Money is the real god in this country, uh, once again. Speaking of disgusting, and I'm not going to even ask the easy question of, are you surprised by this? But a lot of people on the right have been diminishing the actions, the actions of these kids that have been through this experience. You know, they've been marching to uh, Tallahassee. Some of them came up to uh, D.C. And as I said, they met with the president. But you got a lot of people on the right saying that they're following a script and some of them are paid actors. And, you know, you mentioned the word disgusting. And I was like, you know, there's no level that people won't stoop to for a political agenda. Like, here's my question, because I said, like I said, I won't ask you any surprise because I know you're not surprised. But what about this? Even if these kids were falling in a script, how can you diminish what they've been through and the fact that, hey, they feel like a change needs to be made and that they can bring about that change? What are you gaining out of trying to diminish their actions other than, I guess, being afraid that they're they're being effective? That's the only thing I can come up with. So, I mean, what what is the right the right wing media getting out of? You know, saying that they're paid actors and they're following the script and and they don't really believe in this cost. I don't know what they're they're really getting. I just know what they're promoting. It goes back to what I was saying about what they worship, which is money. And so from that standpoint, the NRA is going to stay the NRA. I mean, let's put it like this. this. What you're seeing this week is all spin because. If Sandy Hook couldn't get this changed, okay, bump, bump stocks is easy, right? Bump stocks should have been changed the day after the Las Vegas shooting. They shouldn't even had. Why was that even a question? Like, oh yeah, this guy broke out a window in Manly Bay and murdered, you know, over 50 people, I believe, at least. And and um, you know, all of a sudden we we're saying, oh, should we get rid of high round magazines? I mean, everybody knows these weapons are not used for hunting or really any, you know, some of these high capacity magazines and things like that aren't used for hunting because you wouldn't even have any game to, to take home if you use the rounds like that on, on, on the animals. So, I mean, I, I think the idea that um, the, the media is saying that these kids are scripted, it's just a way to, for them to comfort themselves in being in bed with the NRA and knowing that they don't have a political career without the NRA. It's like science, like signing a deal with the devil. That's really what it is. It's like your political career is not going to continue if you um, speak out against us. And so it's like they got in that room and they were like, here's what you're going to say. Because Marco Rubio, we didn't talk about that, but I mean, there was obviously the, the issue where the question uh, came up where, hey, are you going to uh, take money from the NRA? And it wasn't a direct, no, I'm not going to take money from the NRA answer. And a kid asked the question. So, I mean, these are these are things that are coming up and and there and there's obviously a huge conflict of interest and I think people should be aware of, of who is really running the country. Those are things that are really um, need to need to be understood and so people need to take note. What's also been funny is how they just besides saying that they're scripted, they're just saying they're pretty much uh, writing them off because of their age, because they're kids, as though kids can't be activists 
I'll just remind them that the civil rights era was full of young people from the sit-ins to uh, marching that were that were activists, and they were in their teens, even younger than that. So kids can bring about change, and I don't think they should be written off because they're they're young. So I'll say one more thing because, like you, after Sandy Hook, I said they'll they'll never be changed to our gun laws. The difference with this is these kids are speaking up. You know, those kids were like elementary kids. They couldn't, they, the ones that survived couldn't speak up. And we know they're not going to listen to the parents. But these kids are at the age where they can speak out. So maybe, or maybe I'm just being naive. Um, <clears throat> I also mentioned the Me Too movement last week on the show. And I wanted to discuss it, but I'm going to hold off on that. We're going to try to get... um a special guest on in the fu- in one of the future shows to discuss it because I want to tackle that issue in depth as it has now reached uh, sports with the Dallas Mavericks and uh, Mark Cuban is having to deal with that. So the Me Too movement is not going anywhere and I promise you we will cover it. Um, but like I said, we did talk about the Gun Trace Task Force and an attempt to get more answers. We're going to um, see what we find out with today's guest, Jane Miller. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Joining us today on Politically Entertaining, she's an Edward R. Morrow Award winner, twice named one of mo- one of the 50 most powerful people in the Baltimore region, and she has over 30 years of news coverage with WBL in Baltimore, Maryland. Jane Miller, I really want to thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, last week, Frank and I on the show, we discussed the uh, the gun trace task force with the Baltimore Police Department. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on my on my uh, facts. I think it's is it up to eight officers that have been found guilty. And that's uh, correct. And I know Commissioner Davis is now gone. Is there any chance is there any chance that this could go higher uh, as far as like maybe reaching someone in City Hall or some judges that should have known that, you know, the warrants were not on the up and up. Is there any chance that it can go higher than the actual police department? That's a good question. The um, FBI agent, the lead agent in the case, testified during the trial of two of the defectives, two, two of the defectives, Daniel Herschel and Marcus Taylor, which just concluded with their guilty findings by a jury, um, you know, last week that the investigation was still, quote, ongoing. And I interviewed the two prosecutors who handled the case, the two federal prosecutors this week, and they said, you know, we'll take us wherever the facts lead us. Um, but, but you don't know. We just don't know. Much of the case against the eight officers, first there were seven, and then there was a sergeant who was indicted later um, that were all members of the special enforcement unit that was um, known later in its existence as the Gun Trace Task Force was built upon a wiretap. And the wiretap started with a drug case, a drug trafficking case. It dates all the way back to 2011 when a young woman in a suburban county, Harford County in Maryland, died in a drug overdose. And that led to a federal investigation of a drug trafficking organization 
and the, and a wire went up on that organization and on that wire the drug wire here comes um Mamadou Gando who at the time was a detective in the Baltimore Police Department and happened to be a childhood friend of one of the targets of the drug investigation one of the drug dealers and so he was heard on that wire discussing um, protecting the drug organization and mentioning other members of the special enforcement unit. In particular, he talked about Wayne Jenkins, who's really one of the ringleaders in the case. Um, and that then spawned the corruption investigation. So in April of 2016, there's a separate wire that goes up, and that is on Gondo. So now Gondo's conversations with other members of the of the you know gun squad are being recorded. That lasts until August, the wire, and then starting in August of 2016, they rec- they put a microphone in his car, in his in his Baltimore police car. So a whole lot of the case is built upon the what was recorded when <laughs> no one knew they were recording them. <laughs> And so I say that because unless they've had other wires going that we're not aware of at this point, I don't know where this if this case would go. One of the relatives of Daniel Herschel, who was convicted by the jury, said, you know, this case went south. It didn't go north, meaning that once Gondo was on that wire on the drug wire, it went kind of laterally and down to other officers, but it didn't go up to commanders. So. That's a that's a good question. A lot of people are asking that question of whether this case has the potential to touch people of higher rank in the police department. And I, I think it's just unknown at this point. When I first read about this case, it was like reading a script for Denzel Washington's training day or the wire <laughs> right. or the wire that was filmed in your city. Are are you surprised? Yeah, but you know, you know what? Well, yeah. you know, the. I'm really not surprised by it. I was just going through, I've been here a long time and I was just going through, I'm working on a story and it, and I was going through, um, you know, some of the archives of the last decades. And if you live in some of these communities in Baltimore and are familiar with them, you know that this is not a shock. Mm-hmm. People have been complaining about police officers who um, stop them unnecessarily, take their money, um, maybe plant drugs. Those kinds of complaints have been going on a long time, not just in the city of Baltimore, but really in any urban area. And so I think that I think what was, if you want to say astonishing about the gun trace task force federal case is that you had all of these allegations in one place and you had four former police officers who had all pleaded guilty in the case and agreed to cooperate sitting on a witness stand under oath and testifying about the misdeeds and the crimes of a Baltimore police unit. So that was somewhat revealing and really the first time we've seen that kind of at that level. But in terms of the overall theme of the case, which is that police use their power to steal from people, abuse people and um, and and arrest them unnecessarily, that that is not something that is a shock to many people in Baltimore communities. I um I try my best to watch as much news as I can. I I don't want to indict the media, but from what I've seen, it's it hasn't gotten any national attention that I think it deserves. Have you been surprised? That's a really at the good lack question. Of, 
Yeah, are you surprised at the lack of national attention it's gotten? Well, you know, we're we are um, in Baltimore. We are Baltimore is kind of the you know laboratory for the country in many ways. Um, we get a lot of national attention. We got a lot of national attention in 2015 when the unrest occurred after Freddie Gray died. Right. Um, and I, you know, the kind of the it's not, I don't want to say it's a joke, but you know, some people kind of with a wink and a nod say, you know, unless somebody's burning something in Baltimore, then the national media is not going to come here. I was surprised too that there, it didn't get more national attention. But keep in mind, it is a case. It's not a death in custody case. Um, these are on-duty crimes that the gun squad committed, but they are economic crimes. They're robbery. They're extortion, and. It's the same kind of case as, you know, a Michael Brown case in Ferguson or an Eric Garner case in New York or a Freddie Gray case in Baltimore where, where these are death in custody cases. Um, and maybe that's why it didn't get the kind of attention. But in terms of the level of corruption, many have said that it is among the really largest in the history of law enforcement in this country because it took down eight officers at one time. Actually, there's a ninth who's a now a Philadelphia police officer, but he has not gone to trial yet. Um, and so I think that that's I, I don't know. I think you raise a really good question about why it hasn't gotten more national attention. Hey, Jane, uh, I'm, I'm Frank. I'm going to jump in here. And you mentioned something very interesting. You said that this could have been one of the worst uh, cases of uh, corruption in, in history, but in your 30 years of covering these different types of stories and doing this investigative reporting, do you have a particular story that you uncover that you that still sticks with you as like the biggest you know thing that kind of like stuck out as a as a big like offense or a big problem that you you brought uh, light to? Oh my God, there are many of them. Um, honestly, I think that in in the in the scheme of um, in, in, let's just take Baltimore for an example, and this is a cumulative amount of reporting over many years. Um, the, the Baltimore Police Department is a large organization. It also takes up a huge chunk of the city's budget. And the debate that's going on now, which has gone on before, but probably with a little more vigor right now because of the Gun Trace Task Force case, is how do you get a better result out of an institution in a city like Baltimore that has, it takes 60 cents of every general fund tax dollar um, that has such a large share of funding. I always say, you know, it takes up all the air in the room. It'll, it will know Baltimore is succeeding when the thing you're not talking about all the time is the policing um, and crime, et cetera. But I, I think that, I don't think there's any, on this topic, I don't think there's any one thing. I think it's a cumulative result of decades of reporting of the same thing. I mean, you know, I was just looking at a 2006 story I did on overtime abuse. It's like, you know, we're still talking about this. Things haven't changed. It's it's like, it, 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 it no matter how much attention gets paid to it, and no matter how much people complain about it, it doesn't seem to change. And everybody is waiting for that moment when the ship really turns and we get a more constitutional um, policing result in Baltimore where we get a more 
community policing result, and most importantly, where we get uh, uh, policing with integrity and effectiveness. And effectiveness is the is the name is the word. It doesn't get used enough. And what I mean by that is where you have effective police presence in areas that are subject to commercial crime, for example, where you have an effective investigation, where you can really bring to justice people who commit violent crime. All of that still awaits in Baltimore in a, in a fashion that people really have confidence in. So I think that over the years, there have been many stories that I've done that kind of stick out that, that speak to that point. And we are, um, you know, everybody's really eager in Baltimore to get to a point where we, we are starting to see, you know, a real turning point in that. Wow, that was a, that was a really great answer. Um, you mentioned a cumulative effect. You know, one of the things about this type of reporting is it, it seems like it could take a lot out of you. Uh, from a standpoint of covering the story and unearthing, unearthing all the details, is that something that you've had to deal with over the years is, is decompressing and decompartmentalizing, say, when you go home, some of these big, big cases and big stories that you're breaking? Yeah, I mean, through the trial, when I sat through the trial of the gun free task force, you know, it was a lot of work, obviously, but it was also, you know, at the end of the day, you're just like, wow. And yet, I mean, look, I, I, I am not one at all to say this is the whole department. I mean, I know many very good professional police officers and I know they're as embarrassed as anyone that some officers will use the badge as a shield to do, to commit crime, um, which is exactly what happened in this case. And so I think that, I think that no, I don't think it, it's the kind of thing where you get so tired of reporting on it, you don't want to report on it anymore, but I do think it somewhat inspires you to really look at broader issues of what are real solutions, which I've done and I am working on now in terms of looking around the country at different models and best practices um, for, you know, the operation of the police department and the internal operation and accountability and all those issues. It really does kind of provoke you to look at are there are there cities that are doing it differently? And I think that's been a benefit. It's caused everybody to really look at explore that issue. So I think that's the that's really an upside of this case. You can listen to this interview and our past interviews on our YouTube channel, Politically Entertaining. We're talking to Jane Miller. She's covered news over the years from Pennsylvania to D.C. You can follow her on Twitter at J.E. Miller, W.B.A.L. Jane, I watched uh, Baltimore Rising on HBO, the documentary. And I think mm-hmm. at the I think right. at the time, uh, Commissioner Davis was still in power, That's right. and he met with activists the, uh, during the post Freddie Gray uh, uprising. Any mm-hmm. word on if uh, this new commissioner, I think it's De Sousa, uh, mm-hmm. Daryl De Sousa, that's correct. Do you know if he'll continue this type of outreach to the community to try to uh, help close that gap between the community and the police department? I just listened to his um, just today. I was I did covered the other day when he had his confirmation hearing before the Baltimore City Council, but he certainly was questioned about that. He is um, a he's an insider of the Baltimore Police Department in the sense that he spent 30 years in the department, very well respected in the communities in which he'd work. He's he's worked, um, and I think there's a lot of of confidence in him in 
in trying to rebuild the broken trust between communities and policing in Baltimore. And we'll see. I mean, he's only been on the job now about a month. And um, he, he was there was a lot of questions about his relationship with communities, et cetera. He's, he has, as a result of the um, gun trace task force case, he has set up a corruption unit, which is to follow up on other names that came up in the course of that trial of officers who weren't charged, but worked with some of these other the officers who were charged. He's also setting up an overtime abuse unit. And I think most importantly, he set up as one of his, in his command structure and what he calls an inspector general, which is in charge of the consent decree, the constitutional policing element of this, all of that in one place. And he, and the other thing he said the other day was that he wants to break up the, he doesn't want to concentrate investigation just with internal affairs because that has taken a real hit in the gun trace task force case, the ability of that to really root it out and to kind of spread it around to other components of the police department. So his plan sounds like a very good step in the direction of being able to hold the department to account. If he can execute it, that's what remains to be seen because he's just taking over. Um, I think that, that you could really go a long way in having a better result. I want to thank you for helping um, bring light to a case that I felt like wasn't getting enough attention. Frank and I try to pride ourselves on covering topics that don't get covered uh, nationally. So we thank you. Uh, WBAL's Jane Miller, we appreciate your time, man. All right. You have a good night. Good weekend. You too, man. want to thank Jane Miller once again. Uh, what I got from the interview her, one of her answers reminded me of your answer last week when I asked you, were you surprised with what was going on with the uh, Baltimore Police Department? And you said no. And she pretty much said the same thing today. And when you asked her, you know, what what uh, case has she covered that stood out? Her answer that, you know, has really been cumulative and some of the things she's covered in the past is still going on now. I got the sense that, you know, I, I, I sensed a little frustration that it seems like sometimes it seems like things won't change. Uh, what did you pick up from the interview? And I know I've beat this gun trace task force topic to death, but uh, it's been interesting to me, man. So so what did you get from it? I mean, first of all, you know, thank you again, Jane, for coming on. She's obviously a local legend over 30 years of doing investigative reporting. You know, and that's and that's a big deal, especially in today's media where you got people who are just kind of kind of just doing whatever and not really checking the facts. I mean, she has, you know, done a lot of good for the community of, of in the city of Baltimore. So just hearing her talk, hearing her experience was just a great thing to hear uh, and just understand that people are out there really working hard behind the scenes to try to make things better. I know, you know, and that's the thing to understand is sometimes people get frustrated on Twitter and things like that. But this, there's people that are working and doing things, and that's something to take note of. So just respect to her. Um, and just her perspective and her patience, um, even though she, like I said, a little bit of frustration, but just she has great perspective and patience looking and understanding what could be done to fix the situation instead of just throwing her hands up like it's a, it's a it's a lost cause. And I think that's one of the things you see a lot of is like people are not willing to really stick their heads and hands and to, to the plow to really work and find a situation. If we had more people like her, we'd have less of the problems that we're seeing uh, you know, with police corruption and such things like that. Agreed. 
the uh, the supplemental nutritional assistant program, also known as SNAP, formerly known as food stamps. Now, I touched on this last week. Your boy, and his administration <clears throat> has proposed a new program within this SNAP program. And basically what they're saying, what they're proposing, it would affect 80 percent of the people that get um, these benefits. And they want these benefits to come in the form of a USDA food package. And I want to read a quote. The package was described in the budget as consisting of chef stable milk, ready to eat cereal, pasta, peanut butter, beans and canned fruit and vegetables. The boxes would not include fresh fruits or vegetables. Basically, your federal government is proposing that your state governments pick your food out for you if you receive SNAP benefits. So they'll pick your food out for you and deliver it to your house, kind of like Blue Apron. Besides the fact that that seems logistically impossible, especially for people that are in extremely urban areas, you know, for a party that says that they don't want government in your business, when it comes to poor people, it seems like they want government all in your business because now they're trying to tell you what you can and can't eat, essentially. So uh, <clears throat> when we first mentioned that the, the whole tax cut thing that the Republicans passed, we said that they were going to have to find a way to pay for it. This proposal here would cut one hundred and twenty nine billion dollars in the budget over the next 10 years. Now, it likely won't pass. But my question to you and we'll get into some more details of it. But my first question to you is, is this a prime example of how elections matter? Because even if you're not on the SNAP uh, program, chances are you have a family member that is or someone that you care about. Uh, you know, depends on these benefits. So, you know, we always preach elections matter. Would you say that this is a prime example of that? Of course, elections matter. I mean, we've covered a number of topics on the show. This being another one that the deportation of people uh, being another. There's consequences to everything in life. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, there's just no way that you know, people couldn't think that something, something like this was going to happen. I think one of the things that, you know, the, the, the conservative, the right does, they have, they have demonized poor people or, or disadvantaged people to the point where there are people that are probably okay with it. People, there are probably people that are like, well, yeah, I work really hard for my, you know, whatever. So you shouldn't be able to get whatever you want. You should be, you know, you should get whatever you you deserve. And it blows my mind that that mindset comes out from what, what people consider, uh, the right right wing evangelicals to be a Christian type of party. And I, I know I hit on this a lot and you're probably like, man, Frank, you're going in on, on the religion thing or not religion. They practice religion. Um, but, you know, the whole Christianity piece. And so my thing is they they practice, they're practicing false doctrine because there's no way you don't. If you truly understand who God is and you really believe who he says he is, you don't really have anything. He's giving you everything. You're just a manager of it. So the fact that you can look down at other people and say, oh, well, you didn't work as hard as I did. You don't know what their situation is. You know, people judge from 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 their, you know, ivory towers and tell people what they should do. And that's the problem. It's like maybe all the money you have sitting in your bank account or in your car, or those things you wasted on is supposed to go through to somebody else. I think that's one of the things we lose in America is we think that everything's just supposed to stop with you. A lot of times God 
bless his people for it to go through you. So a lot of times you don't realize that you really you don't realize something that you bought or something that you spent a lot of money on that you thought you deserved. It didn't work out because it wasn't supposed to go to you. It was supposed to go through you to somebody else. And I think that's what you're seeing now is the way this government is set up. It's like or, or the ideology on the right is, well, it sticks with me. You know, I'm not going to. Yeah, so the whole trickle down thing, you know, that they claim to work, it doesn't work because people don't people hold on to their blessings, so to speak. You know, my, my pastor says the thing he says, you either get you either have bread or seed. And so, you know, sometimes people are very stingy with the, what they have because they and it becomes bread. That means you just eat it and it's gone. But when you have seed that you're you let things go through and it grows. And I think that's what we're we don't see in this country is that people don't have the mindset of what it means to be truly generous. And so you end up with things like this where now people are being dictated to with what they get to eat. So now people who are having children, no fault of their own, they're not gonna be able to get fresh fruit and vegetables and people are and people are okay with that. Why are people okay with that? You know, I would just say that there's just a lot of false doctrines being practiced um, from a religious standpoint and then and then being married with a bad political ideology. And that's why you keep seeing this kind of thing happen uh, over and over again and people acting like, oh, it's it's OK because these people deserve it because of their circumstance. Now, this is extremely speculative, but I want you to think about this for a moment. Do you think that these people are going to be getting the best of the best when it comes to the, you know, the meats or whatever they decide to pack this food kit with? Or is it going to be the worst of the worst? Because it sounds like it's going to be a lot of processed food. So, I, you know, that's just something else to think about, like. For your state government to pretty much tell you what you can put in your body because you receive these benefits, it's just crazy. You know, I think back to when Michelle Obama and, you know, Barack were in office and, you know, she proposed this healthier school menu for our kids in school. And, you know, conservatives lost their mind saying how how dare she try to tell me what my kid can eat. And I think Sarah Palin, don't quote me on this, but she said something to the extent of, you know, if I want to feed my kid uh, donuts and sugary foods, that's my prerogative. Like, how stupid is that? Like, yeah, you can. But like Chris Rock said, you can drive with your foot. That doesn't mean you should do it. So my, my other question to you is, you know, how would they respond if Obama proposed something like this to where he was dictating what, you know, rural America could eat, you know, as conservatives like to call real American heartland people in Kansas and Iowa and Wyoming? How would they have felt if, if Obama said, you know, people in these very rural areas because of certain logistics and costs, the government is going to decide what you eat. We're going to send you your food. They would have lost their mind. And, you know, I said that this likely won't pass and it probably won't. But keep in mind, this is the second year in a row that Trump, the Trump administration has proposed something like this. They really want to cut benefits to this program. So, you know, again, just be mindful of what's going on. But I did want to get your thoughts on that. Can you imagine if Obama proposed that? What would the, uh, in your opinion, what would the reaction have been? I mean, I think we all know the reaction to when um, anytime somebody, let's keep it real, anytime a man of color makes a decision that affects other other people who aren't of color potentially, not everybody has that feeling, but some people, a lot of people do, 
then what you're going to have is people saying, who, first of all, people are going to have that mindset of stereotypical, like, who is this, you know, N-I-G-G-E-R to tell us who we're going to eat? You know, there's still there's still that whole because we have the unresolved issues of slavery and what it's done in the country and people haven't resolved it. It's like there's this unsettled nature in both in both black and white races that needs to be addressed. So it's like for people that are, you know, looking at welfare and things about SNAP, people have this picture of black people or maybe Hispanic people who are getting these benefits. So they have no problem with getting poor food, you know, and then in the other side, you said rural areas, middle America, people think about good old, you know, country, uh, Anglo-Americans. So it's a different, it's just, it's just a stereotypical thing. But the funny thing is, there's more poor white people on SNAP than anything. So it's not, it's, it's, it's just like one of those things where it, it, it's crossing along racial and class lines. And so at the end of the day, I don't think Really, either side politicians care. I think for the Republicans, just, like you said, they're just looking for a place to cut, and this is a this is an easy target that works well with their base to say, hey, let's cut the food stamps because these people aren't really working; they don't really deserve it. So I think that's part of it as well. So it all plays into the same game of um, you know not caring for the less fortunate and 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 like I said, not being generous and, and like everybody wants a tax cut for themselves. So people don't understand like. I would have been fine with not getting a tax cut if it meant people can keep their SNAP benefits because, I mean, yeah, it's great to have a little bit of extra money, but that's not important to me. Like, that doesn't make me – I don't go to bed at night thinking, man, I'm glad I'm getting more money. Like, you can't – people don't understand what, what true happiness and what it means to be a true servant of others, and that's why people in this country are so miserable because they don't have any joy in anything they really have. They just want to try to take – what other people have a way, make sure people don't get it. There are people that have more joy and see people miserable than actually what they actually have. Like that's that's part of Trump's base. That's a spiritual thing. They're part of his base that are like, yeah, we're miserable, but we know other people are miserable too, so we're okay with that. I'm like, what what kind of twisted spirit do you have? You know? But that's that's where we're at. That's that's a true story. One last thing to think about. Some of these areas that get really bad weather, like snowstorms and blizzards. What are they going to do then on those days during those times when that family is out of food and this so-called delivery service can't make that delivery because of inclement weather? You know, it's it's so many different things that hasn't been thought about. And I don't think they even really care. They just see how much money they'll be saving. And that seems to be the priority. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to the show. Uh I apologize for my voice today. I, I was trying to hit the mute button on time when I needed to cough. But uh, if you heard some of that, my apologies. I want to thank Jane Miller again for coming on. And again, please continue to listen, continue to share, rate us, subscribe. I run into so many people that say, hey, it's a new episode out. I mean, I, I'm nice about it. I tell you, yeah, but if you subscribe, then you don't have to wait on me to post it on social media or wait till you run into me. If you subscribe, the episode comes straight to your device and you'll know right away. So, again, just thank you for listening. We're going to continue to try to bring you news and topics that are not covered nationally. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Again, thanks to Jane Miller for coming on and being so generous with your time and with your just uh, information you shared. I want to, uh, again, reiterate Byron's point. Check out our podcast, uh, YouTube um, interviews. 
subscribe 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 tell your friends about it. if you if you like anything we say or if you don't like what we say tell people somebody else they might like it better we, we just want people to continue to listen in. we want to continue to bring you uh, the important news and the real perspectives that you're not going to hear on the uh, CNN Fox News and MSNBC so we thank you guys for listening we love you we'll see you soon on another episode of politically entertaining thank you for listening to politically entertaining Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.